Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 833-999-1877 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. All right. Hey, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. On this show, we interview recovering addicts who have life-changing stories of overcoming adversity and uh, anyone who has like a story of hope. I'm currently in uh, California right now. We're opening a new treatment center out here. So I've been here for a couple of weeks. It's been hard to find people. And I actually got hooked up with someone in recovery that uh, introduced me to Anthony. And uh, you told me a little bit about your story on the phone. I'm excited to hear it. Like I'm excited to hear like LA stories, you know? Yeah, I think that anytime it comes to Los Angeles, there's such a diverse culture here. Mm-hmm. So many different struggles. You know, it, for me, I'm, I'm 52 years old. And so I, I grew up in a society, you know, low income, mm-hmm. um, a lot of barriers. In Los Angeles? In Los Angeles. I grew up in a small town called Wilmington. It's about 20 minutes from here. Okay. It's out in the Los Angeles Harbor. That's where everything happened for me, you know, as a young kid, where my personality was kind of developed mm-hmm. and um, you know, how I became the way that I became. It's a small community where everybody knows each other. It's not a really small town. When I was growing up, everybody knew each other. You know, you knew your friends' dads yeah, yeah. probably went to school together. I'm a third generation Mexican-American, Chicano. Okay, so three generations were born in California. Actually, you know, I've talked to my grandfather, right? It's really hard because I think When we went through a period of time with like, you know, during the 60s and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, people, uh, especially of the the Latino race, the Chicanos, we weren't accepted real well if we had an accent. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the households didn't want to speak Spanish, you know, uh, even though it was the first language. So I used to ask my grandfather, what part of Mexico are we from? And he used to say California. (laughs) He used to say this. You know, we were here when this was Mexico. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah I, a lot of people don't know that. My mom used to always tell me that because I'm half Mexican. My mom used to always be like, we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. <laughs> yeah, I've actually been to school and taken some classes and mm-hmm. learned about, you know, the history of our people, the Native Americans. You know, really, they, you know, they mm-hmm. got crossed. And uh, anytime you, you dive that deep into, you know, the educational process and, and learn about uh, your people, you know, a couple of things happen. One... There's a feeling of sadness, you know, what took place. And then there's there's a level of pride, too, mm-hmm. uh, because we've, you know, even though with all the struggles, we've, you know, we've endured everything. But, you know, going back to the city that I grew up in, my father, at a young age, I learned that my father was an addict, that my father was, you know, using heavily, started going in and out of prison mm-hmm. when I was really young. My oldest brother followed in his footsteps. My dad would come home, you know, for a few months and always go back to prison. But it was it was always due to the drug addiction and crimes that he committed behind drug addiction. I knew about drug addiction since I was a kid. For me, I you know, I mentioned to you earlier that uh, there's seven of us kids. Mm-hmm. And so I got three older siblings and three younger siblings. And I was right in the middle, but I was usually the one Uh, that was looked at as the good kid, the smart kid, the one that was going to help my family escape, you know, the neighborhood Mm -hmm. and poverty and stuff like that. And as a young kid, I embraced a lot of that. You know, I felt like I was smart and I could do anything that I wanted to do. You know, some things happened over a period of time and, you know, we lose sight of that. You know, I fell into the trap. But through education, you know, I, you know, I learned about like the preschool to prison pipeline and the society that I grew up in actually spent more money on my failure than mm-hmm. on my success. And what I mean by that is they put more money into building prisons than they do higher education. And so a lot of people that come from my type of background end up struggling. Yeah. And we fall into the traps that are, you know, actually set for us and you know, whether they're purposely set or not, I don't think it really matters, but it's the way life was when I was growing up. So I did real well when I was younger, involved in sports. 
that's really important to to discuss because in the 12-step process that I'm in now, I started to learn a lot of things about myself, like self-examination and just figuring out where I went wrong and why I went wrong and why I made the, the mistakes that I made and how I can be a better person today. One of the things that, that I learned was, you know, obsession and compulsion, right? Mm-hmm. Driven by, you know, total self-centeredness. And I think about when I was young was, you know, was that present in my life? And I think that sometimes we lose sight of the fact that it was, I just used it in a good way. I was obsessed with being a good ball player. I was obsessed with- What sports uh, were you playing? I played baseball. Well, I really played everything, but, but I, I excelled in baseball. In the community that I grew up in, there was a baseball park. It was called J.C. Field. The best of the best played there. We would go to the baseball park on the weekend, and he, he just didn't want to leave. Uh, the atmosphere and the excitement and seeing friends. And the only problem for me is that most of the other kids had their mom and dad there. And my mom would come out, but my dad was never present. Mm-hmm. And when they would ask me questions about my dad, I would either avoid it or I would try to defend, you know, why he was in prison. You know, he's a gangster. And mm-hmm. I, I really didn't know really deeply about the disease of addiction. Was your dad in prison for most of your young adult life? Yeah. I have pictures up of my dad. My mm-hmm. dad passed away a couple years ago. My dad's name was Johnny. He grew up in the same city, mm-hmm. you know, everybody knew him. He knew everybody. You know. it, it was really a big deal, like, to say that that was my father. Mm-hmm. Our last name in the in the community carried weight. Yeah. You know, everybody uh, knew my family. And, and you know, I, I really wanted to mention that, you know, something happened when, when I was seven years old. And we're talking about 1977. Mm-hmm. My mom comes from a big family. She's got... She had nine brothers and sisters, so 10 kids. And the baby of the family was active in the gang. He was from a a really prominent gang uh, that they called the Chan Gang. And he ended up getting killed. And in 1977, drive-by shootings didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And so for for us to experience that, he was killed in a drive-by close-range shotgun blast that blew his face off. Wow. I remember... This is your mom's brother. It's my mom's baby brother. Baby brother. I remember, you know, having to get up in the middle of the night and going to my grandmother's house. And it was just absolutely, you know, just absolute chaos. Mm -hmm. My aunts, you know, fainting and my grandmother, you know, just hysterical. My mom, and my mom was pregnant at the time. She was nine months pregnant, about to deliver my sister. It just shocked me that somebody could take another person's life and my uncle was 15 years old. What happened after the murder was my uncle became became like a legend. And if I went around the neighborhood and said that was my uncle. You got respect. I got so much love and respect. Yeah. And it was almost like, you know, a fallen hero that paid, you know, paid the ultimate price. Mm-hmm. We got so much love and respect to this day. Uh, if I mention my uncle's name, you know, my uncle Mundo, you know, people, there's older men who still say I named my kid after him. Wow. Um, I mean, it was just, it's just really a big thing, you know, and it, what happened was my oldest brother dove deeper into the gang. Mm-hmm. My sister got into the gang, my other brother, and then I followed, and then my younger brother, my younger sister when did you start getting into the gang life? I kind of stood away from it for a while through sports, mm-hmm. uh, through school, and breakdancing. Mm-hmm. Breakdancing for us That's was... so funny. So I kind of mm-hmm. joined late, about 14 or 15 years old. Okay. That's late? In that area, yeah. What I remember is in the 80s, we were clicking up, mm-hmm. you know, and forming groups and, you know, going to different cities and breakdancing against other uh, breakdancing crews. And they told us we couldn't breakdance in the mall. We couldn't break dance on the pier. We couldn't break dance in the school. Mm-hmm. And little by little, they, you know, they drove us to stop dancing and mm-hmm. everybody joined the gang. Wow. And this is the same time that crack cocaine hit the inner cities. Mm-hmm. When I look back on it now, crack cocaine flooded. I grew up in a small, a small part of the town that they call ghost town. You didn't go in there if you didn't have a reason to be there. 
and a lot of drugs were sold. You know, I got into, you know, selling drugs. And uh, now you got to remember that my family never had money. You know, mm-hmm. we grew up on government assistance and, uh, you know, making a quick $500 was like a really big deal. The gangs really started forming. But look at the fact that what the government did is the government actually started using military weapons. They, they had this thing called the Batarang, right, which was a military tank. Mm-hmm. They would come in and destroy a house if they suspected Drug drugs were be- being wow, sold. Wow, I didn't know that. They would really do that? Yeah. And so now think about this. Does this happen in a movie? I forget. I'm trying to think. Menace, that to, society Menace to Society or, or one of those yeah. movies. Yeah. So what we're seeing is we are seeing, especially on the news, what we're seeing is we're seeing military weapons being, ag- being used against civilians. Civilians. And if you see the rest of society, I'm talking about the rest of society. If the rest of society sees military weapons being used against Latinos or Mm African-Americans, they become the enemy. That's really what took place in the city. Yeah, I'm from Florida, so like I, I, I like forget like the whole stuff that has gone on in L.A. over the years. Oh, you know, it was with it like was, the police and the police brutality. You know yeah. all that stuff. You know if you dressed a certain way, mm-hmm. you were stopped, and then the whole cycle starts. You know you start going to jail and you're on probation. What's going on with your dad at this point? Is he still in prison for most? In of and your- out of prison. Mm-hmm. We tried the uh, geographical changes. You know, moving to different city, but the drugs always followed. And he was would, he using too, or just my dad was a heroin addict. Okay, he was a heroin addict who started using when he was really young, mm-hmm. and so the crimes that he was committing, he was a bank robber. Well, eventually he became a bank robber, and so did I, and so did my oldest brother. Wow! But back then they were liquor stores, gas stations. Mm-hmm. At one time we had a we had a garage full of cash registers because they used to have the cashier outside of the gas stations in California back. Way back when. So they would just take the whole register? They would just take the whole register, yeah. So they would have a garage filled with them? We, we our garage, my at my house. Uh, wow. And so, it, yeah, it was crazy. But I'll tell you what, my dad came in one day. It was my birthday. I hadn't seen him for about a week. Mm-hmm. He was on a, a robbing spree. When he walked into the house, it was my seventh birthday. And my mom said, you better go in the room and talk to your son because he's in there crying. Today's his birthday and he hasn't seen you. And my dad walked into the room and he said, happy birthday. And I'm so excited because this is my hero. This is the guy that, you know, like tucked me in and Mm -hmm. shielded me from the dark or the monsters. No matter what he did, he's my hero. So he walks in. I'm so excited. He says, happy birthday. I said, thank you. He said, I have something to tell you. And I said, okay. He said, you know, your daddy's a bad guy. And I said, yeah, I know. And he said, all I can do is be the best bad guy it can be. My perception is that my dad is out there committing robberies, but he's feeding us, right? Mm -hmm. So my dad has become- Like that's his job. Like a Robin Hood, like a modern day Robin Hood Mm -hmm. to to me. And he's my hero. It doesn't matter what he does. You know, I love this man. I just want to be in his presence and, you know, watch football with him or uh, play catch with, you know, baseball outside, whatever it was, he was my hero. Uh, And then- he gave me my first birthday present. He said, I got a birthday present for you. I was so excited. I was like, you do? He said, yeah. He reached behind his back. He gave me a 25 caliber pistol as wow. my first <laughs> birthday gift. Seventh grade? Or seven years seven old? Seven years old. Oh, my God. I went outside and started shooting up in the air. My mom had a fit. <laughs> I think probably within a month, the police raided the house. Mm-hmm. They took my father back to prison, and they confiscated my birthday present. Wow. So there's a shift that takes place. Uh-huh. The police are now the bad guys. You got a young kid that went from playing cops and robbers and wanting to be the cops Being to now looking robber. at them as they're the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing about my upbringing, because I, I want to make it clear, like, I don't blame my parents or society. It's the way things were. Yeah. Right? As a young kid, I didn't adjust to things real well. There's other kids that probably— endured a lot of the same stuff that maybe went on to college and, you know, changed their lives. That didn't happen for me. I did graduate from high school later on, and I got married and, you know, kind of left the gang. And we're talking about, like, the 80s, early 90s, like, drive-by shootings and stabbings and, mm-hmm. like, gang-banging that you see in some of those old movies that yeah. we're talking about. You know, Boys in the Hood is 
was real life stuff, you know, in the community that I grew up in. I met a woman, a, a young girl. She was my high school sweetheart. She became the reason why I wanted something better. As I look back on it now, I think that I needed that in my life where uh, she believed in me. The podcast is called Hell Has oh, an, an Exit, exit right? Yeah. And she provided an exit for me without having to turn my back on the neighborhood. They actually, the guys that I grew up with, I still have contact with some of them today. They looked at me like, wow, you made it out. We're proud of you. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't looked at in a negative way. The only problem is, is that, you know, I grew up smoking a lot of marijuana. I didn't do any hardcore drugs, but when I moved out and got a little bit older, some of those responsibilities that I wasn't prepared for, mm -hmm. sometimes they, you know, they become too much. The 12-step fellowship that, you know, that I'm a part of says our inability to accept personal responsibilities, responsibilities right? Mm -hmm. We were actually creating our own problems. You know, at some point I went out with some friends and I tried some cocaine and things just got really bad, really fast. I lost the house, the job, the car, the wife, you know, ended up homeless on the streets. The wife didn't want to have anything to do with me. She's trying to protect my son, who was a baby at the time. Made the best decision, right? I, I mean, I was so angry at the time, but I know now she made the best, the best decision she could was to get her and my son away from me. And I struggled for years. I got introduced to a 12-step fellowship in 1992. Mm. And I struggled with it because... I thought if I if I could just get clean that I would get my life back and uh, we could get back together. And when that didn't happen, I would go back to using to really numb the pain. You got to remember, this is a woman that helped me escape this whole lifestyle mm -hmm. of insanity, right? And I think that as from a young age, I was always looking for a way out, but never really having an outlet for that. And so for years, I struggled going in and out of treatment centers and in and out of jail. And 1996, 97, my father had already been arrested for bank robbery. My brother had been arrested for bank robbery. And how did they start robbing banks? Well, back in the 90s, it was it was pretty easy. You know, you could just go in and, you know, walk up to the counter and say, this is a robbery. <laughs> Funny story, because my uncle started doing them first. My uncle, I think, had 30-something bank robberies or something, went on a bank robbery spree. In California? In California. Uh -huh. all, all in Southern California, Long Beach, Wilmington, Carson, all the way down to, I think my uncle was like all the way down in Orange County. Mm -hmm. He ended up getting arrested. was also a heroin addict mm -hmm. and went to federal prison. Then my brother started robbing banks and then my dad and my brother went to prison and, you know, he got 10 years. My dad went to prison for the bank robberies and actually got 20 because of his long criminal history. Mm-hmm. I ended up doing the same thing, and I robbed 10 banks in 30 days. Wow, that's so crazy. <laughs> yeah, I robbed 10 banks in 30 days, and then I got arrested. I need to know, like, more. Like, like, what was the process of robbing the bank? Was it just, like, you put a ski mask on, wave a gun, well, and just I, ask for the money? How much you, money are you getting, like, at each robbery? I don't remember each one, but I know that the last one I got, it wasn't a lot of money. It was, like, $8,000 or something like that. When I got arrested, I had... I think I had $7,700 on me. Wow. The last robbery I went in, and my thinking is this. I weighed 118 pounds. Mm -hmm. Right now, I weigh 170, weighed 118 pounds. My thinking is once I get clean, they'll never know who that guy was because <laughs> I, I look like somebody totally different. Yeah. I got high. I went into the bank. Everybody on the ground, this is a robbery. All the bank tellers put the money on the counter. Ski mask on? No. No mask? No mask. Oh, my. Are there cameras then? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you got to think, yeah. though, at this point, it's desperation. Yeah, you're just right? like, whatever. At this point, it's willing to do whatever it takes mm -hmm. for the next one. And if you would have seen me then and who I am today and what I do today, you'll start to understand that there's got to be more people like me out there. Mm -hmm. And society sometimes looks at us, right, while we're out there. And they think, what a waste of life, right? They look at us and they say, what's wrong with them, mm -hmm. right? They should just get them all and, you know, send them to the moon or Man, you know, I've lock seen, them all I've up. I've seen Facebook comments on overdoses where people are like, why do they bring them back to life? They should just let them die. Should it, yeah, it's crazy. So here's the thing. Today, I help other people. I use social media because I understand that it's an avenue to touch a lot of people. In the community that I grew up in, Wilmington, 
I still have friends today that will call me and say, I have a brother, a cousin, an uncle who needs help. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to them? Can you help us get them into a place? Right. I work for one of the biggest hospitals in Southern California with a grant from the California Bridge Program. What they're starting to do is make medication-assisted treatment a low barrier, easy access, mm-hmm. and it starts in the emergency room. Part of my job is to change the culture of the healthcare system in the hospital that I work in and educate the nurses and the doctors so that they don't look at people and say they're displaying drug-seeking behaviors. Mm -hmm. What I tell them is I would much rather them display drug-seeking behaviors in the emergency room than on the the streets. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so if an addict— Well, the thing is that when you're addicted to opiates, it's a full-time job. You don't turn it off and on. Absolutely. You know, so it's like, yeah, when you're on drugs, it's not like— So think about this, though. First of all, if you're going through withdrawals and you want to get clean— you are already having the worst day of your life. Period. I mean, it is, I would not wish opiate withdrawals on anyone. I've experienced like them. being lit on fire. But if they got enough courage to walk into a hospital and say, please help me, that's what the hospital is there for. That's why most of these people's doctors, nurses, uh, EMTs, that's why they got into the field. They wanted mm-hmm. to help people. You start to hear people in the healthcare system say, those people, mm-hmm. I remind them I'm one of those people. The stigma that's attached to a person using drugs will keep somebody from going in and saying, I need help. And how society views like the success rate. Because they'll be like, oh, this person's been here 10 times. Or this person's been here five times. It's like, I always use the gym analogy. Like the LA Fitness isn't like, nah, you already tried to get in shape 10 <laughs> times. You know, we're right. done with you. You know, there are people that are trying every day. And yeah, maybe they're not in great shape, but at least they're doing something. Right. You know what I right. mean? And it's like, it's better to watch someone try than to just give up on that. Absolutely. Be- because getting your ass to the gym is not easy, period. Right. And usually when you go to the gym, why, you, why do you go to the gym? Not necessarily you, but a person. Mm-hmm. Why do they go to the gym? They want to change their life. You know, they, but, they, they, but they're usually motivated by seeing somebody else change their exactly. lives. Exactly, yeah, because right? they know that it's possible. They know that it's possible. And maybe the person with abs isn't inspiring to them. Maybe the person who lost 10 pounds is. Right. You know, and maybe it's someone that pushed them. Maybe it's something they saw on TV. Maybe it's an Instagram post Right. or something. Right. But like, there's some motivation that inspires them to right. say, maybe I could do that. Absolutely, and it, it's the same thing with people And we that, don't demonize people. We're not like, oh, hey, you lost 10 pounds, now you gained it all again. You know, like, right. we don't, like, make yeah. fun of people or right. call them weak or whatever, you know? So it's like, and I know that with addiction, it's it's comparable, but it's not in the same thing. Well, it's here, just such another level. If you think- Here's the thing about addiction, though. So there's been there's been a whole study, right? It's, it's called the, the nature versus nurture argument. And the nature versus nurture argument is- Were you born that way or did you learn to be that way because of the society you grew up in, Mm -hmm. right? So there's a whole argument behind if a person is born an addict or if they're learned behaviors. I think it's both. What do you think? It's absolutely both. Mm -hmm. And so my thing is, is that I have a younger sister. Mm -hmm. You know, she smoked a little bit of weed and she drinks, right? But she's never really been into the whole like hardcore drugs. Is she an addict? Well, here's the thing. She can very well be an addict and have the addictive gene. It's just never been expressed because she's never used, mm-hmm. right? And so, because there's been studies to say, well, if you have the same mother and father, why is this one an addict and why is this one not? Mm-hmm. And they say, well, this one chose to, not necessarily. They could both be born with the same addictive gene, mm-hmm. And one of them displays them in a different way. Yeah. Right. Just like like diabetes or another gene or whatever, where it comes out in different areas. It happens with mental health. Right. There are people who have like episodes of depression when they're younger and it goes away when they're older and vice versa. For sure. Yeah. So in the field that I work in now, I think that one of the things that I learned from the 12-step program was that by helping someone else, I can get outside of myself. I also started to realize that today I've become useful. In the book that I read, it it says something about through abstinence and working the 12 steps, our lives have become useful. Mm -hmm. I understand that like I've been put in a position and, you know, I I believe in God and the whole higher power thing that God has put me in a position to do something very unique, something that I have a perception. I have, my perception is from the inside, right? From the inside of an addict's soul. 
I remember what it's like to walk down the street and be looked at as that guy. The one that when you drive by, you just shake your head and you look and you say, man, what happened to him? Mm-hmm. I've been that guy that had to look down the sidewalk while I was walking. And so when I see people out there, I can still get in touch with those feelings of how it feels. And I remember being out there and just saying, I wish somebody would just help me, right? But not knowing how to ask for help. Mm -hmm. My father, when we were little, he told my mom and my sisters, if somebody comes over while you're cooking dinner, you never ask them if they want to eat. You serve them a plate. Because if you ask them, they're going to say no. You serve them a plate, and if they want it, they'll eat it. Mm-hmm. So in the field that I, that I work in now, I don't ask people if they want help. I offer it to them and let them make the decision, right? But if, if you ask them, you just say, hey, here's this, you yeah. know, and let them make a choice. I, I've learned that, you know, like, what do you want to do and how can I help you, mm-hmm. right? And that's, that's my approach. So let's go back to the story. So you okay. robbed 10 banks in 30 days. Yeah. And then you got caught. So I got arrested. How did they catch you? They had been following me from the night before. Oh, yeah. And I was already in the uh, in the local newspaper. I was on the local news. They had put out a reward for my arrest. They received some tips. They parked at the motel that I was staying at, and they they watched me. The next day, my plan was to get out of town and leave because I got phone calls saying that I was on the news and in the newspaper, so my plan was to get out of town. And uh, I don't know where I was going. I decided, you know, that I would rob one more bank, get enough money, and then leave. That last one. That last one. I needed I needed just one more. I got in the car. I drove around looking for a bank. And wow, I th- so you wouldn't even have a plan. <laughs> you would just drive around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd just drive around. And, and they were following me the whole time. And, wow. and the search for the right bank. What would be the criteria? I wouldn't go in if they had a security guard. Okay. Or if they had glass windows. Back in those days, they just had countertops. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have glass windows like they do now. So I would drive around, look, maybe look inside the bank if they had a security guard. Now, I don't have a gun. We're not going in with a weapon. I'm just going in and yelling, this is a robbery. You wouldn't even have a fake weapon? No. Listen, here's Would the you thing. pretend to have a gun? Do you remember the story? My brother, my uncle, my father... Had all been arrested before me, because and they had guns. They I already talk. knew if you pretend you have a gun, they'll charge you with a gun. Yeah. And that's 20 years off the top. Wow. And so if you go in unarmed, you don't get nearly as much time. If you, you know, stick your finger in your shirt. Same thing. Same thing as a weapon. So I, I didn't go in with, with a weapon. And You I, are the smart one in the family. Huh? <laughs> I said you are the smart one in the family. <laughs> yeah. So... I ended up finding a bank and I parked, I shot some dope and smoked some crack Mm -hmm. and went into the bank, yelled out it was a robbery. I I ran up, grabbed the money. You know, I had a bag, put in the bag and I came running out. Now the FBI is parked outside. In their mind, they were going to catch me when I came out of the bank. I guess I came out too fast and I made it to my car. Hmm. And when I made it to the car, I took off and a high-speed chase ended up ensuing. And, you know, the helicopter, the sheriff's department, the FBI, undercover cars, the whole deal. And they ended up ramming me, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes into the chase. And That I, pit move is just so good. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. crazy. Well, it, I don't even think it was a pit maneuver they because just they just rammed me. The, the FBI is a lot different than like a regular police <laughs> the department. Regular police. Uh, yeah, so they, they just, they rammed me. And uh, when they arrested me, the, the FBI came up to me and he said, he said, how you doing, Anthony? I said, I'm okay. He said, do you know why it took us so long to arrest you? Mm-hmm. And I said, no. He said, well, we have pictures of you from your previous arrest. And then we have this surveillance video from the banks. But you don't even look like the same person. Wow. And he said, when's the last time you ate? And I said, I don't remember. Wow. So the, the police officer asked you this? Yeah, the FBI. FBI? Yeah. And then he told me that uh, he had arrested my brother and my father. Wow. And so they already knew who I was. So he had like some empathy. Yeah. Oh, the thing is, is that the he guy like felt bad for you. The guy put me, I would have felt bad for me too. I weighed 118 pounds. I mean, I've been <laughs> arrested a couple of times. Sometimes they yeah. don't really feel too bad for everybody. You know, the funny thing is, is that he put me in the car handcuffed in the front seat and wow. it was just me and him. Wow. He said, I got to take you to Torrance because that's where the investigation started out of. I was in a few towns over. Mm-hmm. On the way down there, he asked me, are you hungry? And I said, yeah. 
And he said, you're going to go to prison for a long time. Wow. And I said, I know. He said, what do you want to eat? And I'm thinking last meal, you know, like I'm, I'm, so I said, McDonald's. He took me through the drive-thru at McDonald's wow. and bought me like, I don't know, a Big Mac or something. That's pretty cool because, you know, yeah, there are a lot of stories about fucked up cops and, you know, the FBI, whatever, any type of law enforcement. But it is cool to see that there are law enforcement that do go above and beyond to show compassion. You know what this guy, he started asking me questions on the way down there. And he started asking me what happened like with your, you know, with your life. Why are you in this position, right? He was, you know, really curious about you know, what drives a person to do something like this? True story. I said, I'm an addict. I said, I'm a member of a 12-step fellowship, but I relapsed. Wow. I swear to God. So you knew that there was a way out He's, and you knew that 12-step meetings worked. Yeah. You were yeah, just on a relapse. Yeah. And he said, wow. he said, uh, he was a Christian and he said, do you believe in God? And I said, yeah. He said, I didn't arrest you. God saved your life. I went to jail, started going in front of the judge and I signed a deal for 13 years. Mm -hmm. uh, I was facing 200 years, 20 years for each each bank robbery, and I had 10 counts. So I was facing 200 years. They came in and they said, "We'll offer you a deal right now for 13." And I signed the deal. Mm -hmm. Public defender. Public defender. Wow. <laughs> 13 years. I'll get out in 10. How old are you? 25. Wow. And so I I ended up uh, going to court to get sentenced. And the judge asked me if I had anything to say, and I spoke on my own behalf. I had members of, of the fellowship. I had members of the church and then family members all in the courtroom. So the courtroom was packed. Do you believe in God at that time? I've always believed that I had a purpose, that, mm -hmm. that everything that was going on in my life was temporary, wow. that one day life would be different. After I spoke, the judge, he ended up giving me half. Of the 13 years, he gave me six and a half, and I did five years. Mm -hmm. When I went to prison, federal prison, they send you anywhere. I ended up in Atlanta and then uh, from Oklahoma to Atlanta to I just a bunch of different prisons. I finally ended up in uh, South Carolina, and I started 12-step meetings in there. Wrote to this office, you know, out here in, in California and requested some literature and some readings mm -hmm. and started meetings in there. And I stood clean wow. while I was in there. The thing is, is that living on life's terms in prison is a little bit different than living on life's terms out here. Mm -hmm. That was the first time you went to prison? Yeah. I had done little stints of, of jail and, you know, juvenile hall and stuff like that. When I was younger, um, I was lucky. I never really did too much time. Mm -hmm. I got away with a lot of stuff. I always thought it was because I was smart. You know, I was... I think uh, I was able to kind of navigate through, you know, growing up like that. And I was really fortunate. I have an oldest brother who's actively using right now and is struggling. And he's been going to jail since he was nine years old. Me and my sister, my sister's also in recovery and works at a treatment center, you know, tried to help him. But I read somewhere where it says they can be beaten and counseled and prayed, prayed over, over and an addict will not stop using until they want to. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where he's at right now, you know, and it, it, it's hard. You've experienced a little bit of the same thing that I have where we've seen addiction from both sides, a loved one, and then we've been the, the yeah. person using too. Yeah, it's different when you've been there, yeah. Yeah, I tried to help him, and my dad used to tell me when I was a kid, if you ever see your brother get in a fight and you don't jump in, he's, I don't care if he's winning or losing, if you don't jump in, you're going to get your butt kicked when you get home. Today, I look at all those lessons that my dad taught me, right? And today it's about, I have a brother who does really good in life. Mm -hmm. And I have a brother that's struggling. And then the 12-step fellowship came in and taught me unconditional love. My brother's in a fight. And if I don't jump in, my dad's still watching. My dad passed away a couple years ago. He's still watching, right? And so I think about with people in general, you know, some people are in a fight, you know, for their lives. And as a human race, you know, we have a responsibility to jump in, mm -hmm. you know? It's easy to love your siblings that are doing good, but can you show that same amount of love to the ones that are not? That's what I've really tried to do with, you know, with my oldest brother. And it's been difficult. It's been difficult. Sometimes my mental health struggles because of it. I start worrying more about him than I do about my recovery. And I have to, have to shift and remember that if I don't take care of myself, I can't help anyone else. 
And I've been fortunate to be put in a position where I've been able to help a lot of people. I used to work in downtown Los Angeles on Skid Row. And I went out there with the attitude that here's a group of people that are unhoused, have nowhere to live, and they've lost trust in the system a long time Mm -hmm. ago. I come out there. I'm just another case manager who is showing up for a paycheck. That's their perception. You know, he sits behind a desk. He doesn't understand. He doesn't know. And so I would share my story with them. And I would really try to do whatever it was that I could do for them to help them and let them know I didn't get into this field for the money, Mm -hmm. you know. To see somebody really want to start making those changes on their own, it's been an amazing thing. You know, I've helped people stop using, you know, that lived out there. And that's a rough place to live. Downtown Skid Row, you know, drugs are all over the place. It's a really hard place to live. And I've seen it happen out there where they start to make the changes and they want to get out. And some of them go back to using, but it's really difficult. You know, now at, at the hospital that I work in, you know, trying to get people into treatment and just letting people know if you need help and you don't know how to get it, mm-hmm. I can be the bridge in between. One of the things that I learned is in the 12-step fellowship that I'm a part of, they use this word, I, I'm sure you've heard it a lot, uh, predecessor, right? I know some people that have been involved in the same 12-step fellowship for decades, carry the message, travel all over the place, help countless people, and they've paved the way mm-hmm for somebody like me by really dedicating their Their life life. to this way of life. Mm. What happens is we find that- Yeah, like before treatment centers, people just got to clean up people's couches, other members' Uh couches. I always say like, I don't let people do that at my house. You know what (laughs) I mean? So it's like- like, It's tough. Yeah, because like, you know, but back then when, you know, recovery was first starting and people were just getting clean, it was like- It was the only way. It was like people were kicking on couches. If you didn't show up to a meeting, they were showing up to your house. It was a lot of real 12-step calls. You know, I don't go to crack houses to pull people out. You know what I mean? But some people do. There's a story. And they did. There's a story of a member from out here. One of the founding members of the 12-step fellowship that I'm a part of wanted to expand up to Northern California. Mm -hmm. Asked a member from down here to move up there. And meet another guy because they had to have at least two Dude, to start a meeting. Meet, yeah. The guy left his family behind and moved out there. Wow. They were trying to start these meetings, trying to start these meetings. And I believe it was in San Francisco. I might be wrong. And nobody was showing up. And they were putting flyers. And I think they had radio commercials. You know, if you need help, if you're struggling, come, we could help you. And nobody would show up. And the guy left his family behind. And he finally called one of the founding members and he said, hey, so-and-so, this isn't working. And the guy said, just stay another week. You know, go into the garage where they set up the meeting and the coffee and just wait another week. And if nobody shows up, then you can you can come back. And they went out there one more week and some guy walked in and he said, is this where the meeting is at? Mm. He ended up joining the fellowship. So because it was two, the other guy could come back home. Mm-hmm. And I hear stories like that, right, about, you know, them paving the way. So what's become important for me is I have two things that I believe in. Right. And it's really important for me. It's really shifted a lot of stuff for me. And I'll tell you what it is. It's honor and legacy. Every day that I stay clean and be a better person, I'm honoring those that came before me and I'm leaving a legacy behind for those that are coming after me. And when I focus on honor and legacy, it removes me from the situation. Right. And when I'm able to focus on those two things, I'm no longer so important. Right. Mm -hmm. And not that I'm not important. But the self-centeredness isn't at such a height where it gets in the mm-hmm. way of me being useful. Yeah, it's like when you have a when you're on a mission, it's like you lose your ego because you're just about completing the job. It doesn't right. matter about if we did it this way or if I got credit for it or you got credit for it. It's like my job is to do X, Y, and Z. Right. And as long as we do X, Y, and Z, like everything so, else works. So think out. about think about this. When you talk about being on a mission, right? You talk about being on a mission trying to get the job done. Well, for me, I'm a father of three boys. I'm a father of three boys. I have two boys that live in in Arizona. And then I have an oldest son who lives here. We talked about him that, you know, he just graduated from USC. Mm-hmm. I was talking to my youngest son last night. The mission right now is to show my kids by my actions that you could struggle in life, but you could overcome too. Mm -hmm. My mission in life is to show my boys a better way that one day they'll look back and they'll say, my dad came from a very rough upbringing, 
but he changed the course of his life and he helped a lot of people and he became a good man and he was loving and dedicated and compassionate and just had a lot of love in his heart, right? And mm-hmm. and if they see that, maybe they'll emulate some of those behaviors. I want to be able to one day, when I'm long gone, right, just know that you know, my grandkids didn't have to grow up the way that I did. When I was a kid, you know, a lot of responsibilities were put on me as far as saving the family, being looked up to by members of the gang that I was a part of. And I look back now and I think about, you ever seen a baseball team struggle? The reason why they struggle is because their star player isn't willing to put in the work mm-hmm. in practice. And people think, man, if, if he would just put in the practice, like that team would be so good. And that's where I'm at today, right? Because I've always been that person that could make things better for my family, for my job. I was telling a friend of mine the other day, I want people to think that their life is better because they met me. Mm -hmm. In one of the books that we read, uh, it's a daily meditation. I think it's September the 13th. It says, sometimes the world is a better place because a member of our fellowship was there. You know, because this is a a worldwide thing, right? The world is absolutely a better place because there's people that are in recovery. Of course. That have Mm -hmm. brought a different perspective to this terrible disease. My dad died at 73 years old, had been using since he was 15. And I always say that he paid the ultimate price for having this disease. And And you're telling me he was still shooting dope in his 70s, huh? Yeah. And, you know, the, the thing is, is that my dad ended up with abscesses. He was taken to the hospital, and when he was taken to the hospital, they identified him as an addict. They refused to give him pain medication because, again, they said Mm -hmm. drug-seeking behaviors, he's just trying to get pain medication, and he was, but he was in pain too, but they wouldn't give him pain medication. So he said, if you don't give me pain medication, I'm leaving. They put him in a wheelchair and rolled him down to, you know, the, like, emergency department and had my family come pick him up. Mm -hmm. My dad went back out and used for another, I think, day. I think he used one more time. He became septic. His organs started shutting down. He went blind. And they had to rush him back to the hospital. And when we got to the hospital, they said, it's just a matter of time. There's nothing we can do to stop it. This is the biggest, strongest, baddest person I've ever known. Mm -hmm. I grew up with killers and gangsters, and they were afraid of my dad. They wouldn't come to my house if my dad was home. And this disease took him. And that's how powerful it is. My dad, the last time I see my dad before, I was able to make amends to my dad. And I gave him my clean time medallion. And I Mm -hmm. told him I was going to continue living this way so that people didn't have to suffer like him. And I can't save everybody, right? The guy that guides me through the 12-step process always says, we can only keep what we have by giving it away. And that he wants to keep what he has. Mm -hmm. And I think I want to keep what I have, but it's bigger than just me. It's about sharing the good news with other people that there's a way out, you know, that you could find, you could find a way out. And after my dad passed away, I realized that um, I needed to start spending more time with my mom. That same book that I've been mentioning, it it says, uh, Lost Dreams Awaken and New Possibilities Arise. And when I read that, I was like, wow, all my lost dreams have come back. And the deeper I got into the recovery process, I started to understand that those lost dreams aren't always mine. They're my mom's. Mm. You know, they're my kids. I'm talking about my son who begged me to stop using, my ex-wife who just wanted to see me do good in life, all the people in the neighborhood that I grew up in just looking and saying, man, what happened to him? He could have did so much. It's the lost dreams of, of our loved ones that's more important for me. i just been so fortunate to... I was dating somebody recently, right? While we were in the relationship, she said tell me what it was like growing up. And I started telling her some of the stories and Mm -hmm. some of the things that I did and, you know, how it was. And she said, I can't picture you like that. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, then the 12 steps are working. If you can't can't picture me like that, yeah, the process is working. But she said, how did you change from being so cold-hearted to being who you are now? And I said, I've hurt so many people. I just want to be a nice guy. I Mm -hmm. I just want to help other people, you know, because... I know what the other side looks like. How did you get clean? So when you got out of prison, so you did six years in prison, clean all throughout prison. Yeah, clean throughout prison. It's more abstinent, I think. I did, you know, do some like step work and stuff like that, but there's only so much you can change while you're living in that type of environment. I got out and, you know, I did good for about a year. I ended up going back to using and I went to a treatment center. And when I went back to the treatment center, 
because they were ready to violate me and send me back to prison. My PO told me I had to go to this treatment center. I went to a treatment center, completed that treatment center, and I started working there. I met a young kid that was in treatment with me, and he was a little gang member, and I kind of just took the kid under my wing and, you know, started telling him about getting clean and staying clean in this process and, you know, this fellowship and go here, the convention here, and get somebody to work through the 12 steps with you, and I believe in this program, and just really, I was on fire. Mm -hmm. He believed me, right, and he got clean and changed his whole life, ended up getting custody of his son, turned his whole life around. To this day, if I run into his mom, his mom always tells me, you gave me my son back. If it wasn't for you, my son you wow, know, wouldn't cool. be here. I had uh, introduced my sister to the same 12-step program. She got clean. Mm-hmm. Then she relapsed and went to prison. I had a, a guy that was sponsored. We had the same sponsor. He relapsed and kept, he, like, he kept relapsing. And he called me one day and he said, I'm done. And I called so-and-so and so-and-so and and nobody answers the phone. I need help. Please help me. And I said, I'll pick you up. But if I pick you up, I'm taking you straight to a detox. Mm -hmm. And he said, I don't care. Just please, you know, come get me. I ended up picking him up March 2nd, 2004. He's still clean. I started working in treatment, working with teenagers, with kids. I had this one kid that said, He was living out in the streets. His mom was trying to help him. And I asked him when I first met him, I said, you know, when you were a kid, what did you want to be? He said, I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And I said, well, I can guarantee you, if you keep living the life you're living, you'll never be a Navy SEAL. (laughs) I guarantee you. I said, but if you go to, you know, this program, you might have a chance. He said he didn't want to go. And I said, listen, I said, I tell you what, I'll make you a deal. Come for two weeks. And if after two weeks, you don't like what we're doing, you don't have to come back. Mm Mm-hmm. And that kid came for two weeks and stood for two years. Wow. And uh, outpatient. And the last time I seen him, his parents were having a going away party for him because he had just graduated from high school and was going to the Navy. Oh, that's cool. wanted to, you know, try to become a Navy SEAL. I did a lot of things when I was clean. And then I got away from going to meetings and, you know, the whole, like, sponsorship and helping other people. And I ended up going on a 10-year relapse. Wow. And I think that— How long were you clean before you relapsed? Uh, four years. Okay. Four years. But I think it's important for me to discuss that I relapsed several times. Mm-hmm. I was that guy that sometimes goes to 12-step meetings and, you know, takes a, a newcomer, you know, key tag and they say, oh man, that guy's new again. You know, he's never going to get it. Mm-hmm. I was that guy. I struggled for a long time. This time during that 10-year relapse, I ended up paralyzed. I had 10 abscesses. My organs were shutting down. My son ended up picking me up and taking me to the hospital. The doctor told me that I would never make it out of the hospital alive. My ex-wife, who's still a really good friend of mine, started calling friends and telling them to go say their goodbyes. Mm -hmm. I had people coming to see me, uh, praying over me with their, you know, spiritual beliefs. I had surgery and so many infections. Little by little, I started getting better. I had to go through physical therapy to relearn how to walk. My sister that I mentioned that I had introduced to this 12-step program, she had, I don't know, back in like 2003 or something like that, she had got like six months clean, relapsed, went to prison, got out and moved to a different area and got involved in the same 12-step fellowship. When I ended up in the hospital, she came to see me and she said, if you want help, I got a bed for you. And I cried and I said, please help me. I just need to get back home. I need to get back to this fellowship that saved my life so many times. Like, I just need to get back. And she said, you just get yourself better. I ended up going to that place. And when I got clean, I dove into like the step work and sponsorship. The guy that I said that I took to detox in 2004 became my sponsor. Wow. He's one of my best friends today. He's your sponsor today? No, he's not my sponsor but now, was. but he was yeah. when I first wow, got clean. Cool. He's my best friend. Mm-hmm. He's, he's my best friend. He, you know, says I wouldn't have my life. Marry, beautiful home, kids, mm-hmm. you know, got a beautiful life. And, you know, he just always says, you know, like, if you wouldn't have picked me up that day, like, I don't know if I'd be clean today. Sometimes I think that, you know, we see people relapse. For whatever reason, we they relapse. I've done it where... I judge them, right, Mm -hmm. when they come back. And I have to remember that, like, I've been in that situation. Somebody that gets clean and has been clean and has experienced this new way of life, and you go back out and relapse, that guilt. I mean, because everything we do involves friends from, you know, this fellowship. And, you know, we talk to people on the phone. We hang out with these people. We go eat with these people. 
and you relapse and you feel like you don't have them, mm-hmm. right? And it's not that they're not there, but you pull away, right? Because of the guilt and the shame. You take that away from an addict, man, and it's painful. And I, I stood out behind the guilt and the shame and not having the courage to come back. I stood out for a long time and almost killed myself. So when I got back and I got into, you know, with the sponsor and, you know, doing step work and stuff like that, like I took it so serious because I knew that a relapse would kill me. Mm -hmm. I have so many scars on my body. I'm fortunate to be able to walk today. I got hundreds and hundreds of scars from abscesses, um, stomach, chest, legs, you know, from shooting dope. I'm really fortunate to be alive today. Mm -hmm. And when you become that fortunate, you start to understand that. Like, listen, I can't afford to, you know, to waste time today thinking that I'll have more time to do the stuff tomorrow that I should be doing today. Like today I need to make, you know, everything that I can. And mm-hmm. so, you know, helping people or. Yeah. And it's like living with urgency. Absolutely. Know? And it's like, you know, a lot of times I feel like a lot of times people get clean and they feel like they got to make up for lost time and they put all that urgency into the wrong things. Right. Right. You know, so it's like I've seen a lot of people like. You know, when people get out of jail, oh, I got to go get the job in the car. And then they put all their urgency into there, you know. Right. And it's yeah. like, you know, in recovery, we learn to have urgency for like the right things, you know, right. and hold off on some other things. I started working in a in a warehouse as a janitor, mm-hmm. making not a lot of money. The urgency was, how do I make active changes in my ideas, in my attitude? How do I become a better person? That was the urgency, right? A lot of times in 12-step fellowships, they ask you, Oh, you must have missed something last time. What did you miss? Yeah. Right. And the urgency was to find out what did I miss? Right. Where did I go wrong? I was really desperate to figure out, like, what do I have to do? And my sponsor gave me an answer. Right. And the answer was real simple. Right. He said, your only hope is to work the 12 steps. That's mm-hmm. it. Before in the past, you know, I did some step work, but my step work was more like homework. Mm -hmm. You know, it was an assignment that I had to do for my sponsor. It wasn't something that I was doing for me. And so I started to uncover some things about Anthony and, you know, why I had, you know, like done some of the things that I did. I started to realize that it's always been about me. Right. What I want. I know that in one of the steps in the fifth step, it says the exact nature. Yeah. Right. And I got to the point where, okay, well, what does nature mean? Right. The exact nature. And when I looked up the word, it says it comes from a Latin word, natura, which means the birth or to be born. Right. So when I look at like these defects that we talk about, it wasn't just identifying the defect, but where did it come from? Mm -hmm. Where did it start? So some of the resentments that I had, you know, started from wanting my father to be there and wanting to have a relationship with my dad. I hated other people that had a father like mine. I envied them and I I wanted that and I never had it. An ex-girlfriend broke my heart. So I mistreated every woman. Mm. Nobody's ever going to get that close to me where they're going to hurt me the way that she hurt me. And I became, you know, just really callous when it came to women. I always say that with the girlfriend, I remember my disease creeping in. Like the first time that I can identify it, where it say, you ain't good enough, tall enough, you ain't smart enough. Uh, And I started to doubt myself. Now, remember in the very beginning, I said uh, that when I was a kid, I believed that I could do anything that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And now I'm doubting myself. I'm starting to compromise my own beliefs because my dad was a drug addict and I said I would never use drugs. And now I'm compromising my beliefs and a shift took place, right? A shift in my thinking took place. I didn't have a way to recognize uh, that something had changed. It became like part of my life to, you know, get in trouble. And like the 12-step process, I've been able to write that and come back to a place where I believe that God has given me a purpose, right? And that there's something that says um, helping others is perhaps the highest aspiration of the mm-hmm. human heart and something we have been entrusted with, right? So I looked up the word entrusted. It says to be given a specific responsibility. As long as I stay close to the God of my understanding and know that he has a purpose for me, you know, I'm okay. You know, that's the way I've really transformed like my life and you know, helping others and working on myself and trying to be a better person. You know, I volunteer with, you know, different community organizations to help the homeless, feed the homeless, 
like now with, with the job that I have, you know, trying to get people off or trying to get them started with different resources for drug treatment and stuff like that. And then the biggest thing is showing my kids. Yeah, it's so cool. Showing my kids. There's a guy that said something a long time ago. He's, he's, he's from the East Coast. I'm sure you know mm -hmm. him, a guy named Jimmy. He said, if you're going to church, don't tell your kids about church. Show them about church. Like, mm -hmm. take them, right? Well, when he said that, the way I looked at it is, don't tell your boys how to be a man. Show your boys how to be a man, mm -hmm. right? That's what I've done. And it's been difficult because my two younger boys have moved away. They moved to Arizona with their mom. And uh, understanding that because of some of the decisions that I made, they now have a stepdad, right? Mom is remarried. They got a good man in their life who has been a good role model for them. I have to accept that, but also still be there for them. Right. Mm -hmm. My youngest son, I, he, he doesn't, he's not really into, you know, like talking too much, but the middle one, we've always had a good relationship. And then my oldest son, my oldest son lives here with, well, he's staying with me. He came to stay for the weekend and he never left, but <laughs> he's waiting to get into, uh, trying to get into a master's program. So, but I like having him here mm -hmm. and we discussed it too. I, I didn't really talk too much about it, but you know, my son was also at one point using and, you know, got clean and just graduated from USC and film school and now, you know, trying to go to uh, NYU. My son has become my hero. Mm -hmm. You know, I watched him change his life and go back to school. I went back to school and working towards my degree and, you know, he just got his. And That's so cool. Yeah, it's been, it's been cool, man. So I just think that people that are out there that, that are still struggling, that, you know, looking for a way out, some of the for some people, you know, it's residential treatment. Some people, it's, you know, medication. Some people will go to 12-step fellowships. The way I look at it is I just want to help as many people as I can. Mm -hmm. right? And whatever they choose for their path, as long as it makes their life better. And when I think about my dad and my dad, like, never having a desire to stop, would things have been different if he maybe would have been on medication yeah. or if he would have been offered something like that, uh, would he still be alive, you know? Mm -hmm. Or went to, you know, treatment after prison or long-term care or something like that. Yeah. He never, never went into anything like right. that. With my dad being part of the, uh, the California prison system, uh, the Department of Corrections, it was, you know, go to prison, do five, six years, get $200 when you come home and mm -hmm. just throw you back into society. No education, no job training, you know, therapy, nothing like that. Yeah. yeah. You know, he had seven kids, right? How do you come back after being in prison for six years and come back and jump into a father role and know how to deal with all the issues that are going mm -hmm. on in the house? Yeah. Almost an impossible situation for Yeah, that's what you're talking about in the beginning. It sets you up for failure. Right. You know? Hey, well, I want to appreciate you coming on the show. It's a pleasure meeting you. It's so cool to get linked up thank with you. you. For, thank you for having me, yeah, man. Yeah, you had a really incredible story. You know, like, I get a lot out of it because it's like, you know, even being, like, from Florida, it's like hearing your guys' stories and, like, what it's like to, like, not just get clean, but to get clean in your area. You know right. what I mean? So, like, in Florida, I do a lot of, like, Florida natives, and it's cool to see, like, people from L.A. get clean in L.A., and uh, like change your whole life. And like, it's so and dope that you went back to school. That's the, that's the beautiful thing about recovery is that um, in every area, it's a little bit different. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's some of our background and our culture and the way we grew up has kind of, you know, made us who we are. So, you know, the way we do recovery is a little bit different. One of the things that, that I do know is that when I first got clean, after getting out of prison, I was mm -hmm. introduced to a man who grew up just like I did, a big mustache, ball headed, mm -hmm. you know, he, he passed away. But one of the things that he taught me is find somebody close to you that, you know, that you can do this with. I've always had like somebody close to me, like a best friend that mm -hmm. like, hey, we're going to do this, go to meetings and stuff like that. Come from similar backgrounds and stuff like that in different areas. Like it's cool for us to like travel yeah. and go see how People you know, do other it, groups yeah. are doing it and how they get along, you know, or how they, you know, do their their fellowship or whatever it is, conventions and stuff like that. So, it, it, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Beautiful hey, cool. Process. Hey, I appreciate you coming to the show, I man. appreciate Thank you, you so coming much. out, man. Hell does have an exit. Appreciate good it, luck man. with everything that you're doing, yeah. man. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 833 nine 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 one eight seven seven 
to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.